Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I'm Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth is author of the Sunday Times top five bestseller, How to Fail, Everything I've Learned from Things Going Wrong. Also, she's got a podcast of the same name. And she's absolutely terrific. Here's a bit of personal promo for you. I'm coming to Australia, New Zealand and Canada with my new show Recovery Live in the new year, March and February. Tickets are on sale right now. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. Also sign up for the mailing list while you're there and you'll get um, exclusive content. I'll respond to your emails there. You can send to the um, help email on at the same address. And you'll get access to sort of limited ticketed events and stuff like that. Also, we have a look at my YouTube channel for spiritual videos and the like. Uh, I need you to have a good look at it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Rusty Rockets. Instagram, at Russell Brand. Same on TikTok. Oh, how I love you, TikTok. And LinkedIn also. Um, We don't have no comments because we're recording these things together because it's coming up through Christmas period. But let me tell you about Elizabeth Day. She's a really open, authentic, beautiful person, spoke with great clarity and in a very moving way about her relationship with failure, her perceptions of herself and how failure can be sort of utilised for progress and for self-realisation. It's a lovely episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you're having a wonderful time in this dormant period. Thank you. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful yeah, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thanks, Elizabeth, for coming on Under the Skin. Thank you for having me. I'm so honoured to be here. We're most honoured to have you, to have your expertise, your energy and your insights. Tell me more about how to fail and the significance of failure and what, where your personal experience begins and how it um, helps you as a, you know, as a communicator and a teacher and whatever it is you're being now. So I started a podcast called How to Fail and it started in July 2018. And what had happened to me before that was that short story is I got dumped three weeks before my 39th birthday. Ooh. I know. Um, At least it wasn't 40th. Exactly. I think it would have been marginally worse. But I was left staring down what felt like the barrel of my 40s. And 40 is an integrally important age for anyone to turn, but I think particularly women of a certain generation. Why? I can remember my mother turning 40. And and the fact that I could remember my mother turning 40 and yet I didn't have my own family, I didn't have my own children, which I always thought I would do by that age, made me feel like a failure. And that was the starting point for me to look at the decade of my 30s And I realised they'd been a decade of enormous transition. So during my 30s, I got married and then divorced. I tried and failed to have children. So I had two rounds of IVF unsuccessfully. And then I did get pregnant, but I miscarried at three months. And that all happened in one year. And then I had chosen to be in a different relationship. And yet having even made those different decisions, that relationship ended brutally and out of the blue. And I realised that as much as the future felt intimidating and uncomfortable, and as much as I felt heartbroken and grief struck, that I had withstood all of those things that had happened to me. And that each time something like that happened, I had discovered that I was stronger than I'd anticipated. And I realised that through failure, I had 
been forced to confront myself in uncomfortable situations and that that each time had led to a period of growth and had ended up with me being somewhere different from where I'd expected to be. But what I realised was that was a liberation rather than a limitation. And that was where the idea for the podcast came from, is that I was having these kind of thoughts and I was also having quite honest conversations with my closest friends about love and loss and vulnerability and it made me feel connected and less alone and I wanted to open that up to a wider audience so I started the podcast and then I wrote a book also called How to Fail um, and, and that's where I'm at now. What do you think it thanks what do you think it is about uh, failure and vulnerability that affords us different types of relationships and what do you think is significant about it? I think that Paradoxically, when you share your vulnerabilities, it's when you can forge most connection with other people. Because we live in a culture where it feels sometimes as if we are only as good as our last Instagram post. And it feels as if everyone else is living a more quote unquote perfect life. And therefore, that can be quite alienating if you don't feel in that position yourself. And creating a space where you can share honestly the things that have gone wrong and the mistakes that you've made is what makes us more human. So there's something about connecting on that level that is a shortcut to talking about deeper things, about what makes us who we are. And it also, I'm sometimes asked to define failure. And my definition is when something doesn't go according to plan. And when something doesn't go according to plan, you have to question what the plan is and where it's come from. And what I realised was that my plan had come from millennia of social conditioning as to what was expected of me as a woman and what was expected for me was that I would get married and have children because I'm a heteronormative middle class woman and it was also informed by watching a lot of 1980s rom-coms when I was a child and actually when I started to question that plan I questioned how much of it I myself wanted my soul wanted and how much of it I'd been told that I should want by outside forces. What did you discover when you began to interrogate those ideals that you were unconsciously pursuing? I began to discover that I existed separately from anything that I was anxious about. And for me, that was a very How profound you, moment. Tell me more about that. So in the wake of that breakup I described at the beginning of the interview, I listened to a podcast with Eckhart Tolle, who said that you should treat everything that happens to you, the good and the bad, as if you've made it an active decision to have that happen to you. And that was tremendously helpful. And he also said this thing about, if you switched off all of your thoughts, would you still exist? And I realized that I would still exist. So who is the person that's doing the existing? There's something fundamentally profound in me that is separate from the thoughts that are unspooling in my head, the anxious narrative that my brain might choose to tell me and the social conditioning that has given me this plan. I exist separately from that. And that for me was the start of everything really. And I'm sure you can relate to it because I know that you meditate and you've done a similar amount of journeying in this area. But that was, you know, it took me until 39 to realise that I exist separately from my thoughts. It's quite a important realization and uh, to be honest with you Elizabeth one that I that's a 
a um, an intersection that I find myself at quite frequently, defining myself by what I think. Because my modality is a 12-step one, abstinence around drugs and alcohol and a code around behavioral addictions around food and sex and relationships, for example, uh, the step one moment is a, a sense, a kind of an acknowledgement of that point of awareness and uh, separation that you described, i.e. separate from thought and from thinking. When I talk to people like that are acting out or relapsing or whatever, it's always when you talk to them about what the process was, right? They're either unconscious and just doing it, you know, sort of kind of obliviously, or they're thinking negative things about themselves, like Eckhart Tolle. I thought Tolle, but you're saying Tolle. Oh, I don't, you probably know better than I do. I don't I just know. because he's a bit German. <laughs> Tolle makes it sound all Tolle. continental. Tolle. I've never heard him say his own name, but why would he? He's completely free from selfishness and self-centeredness. Maybe you're right. Um, I heard, like, uh, I feel like, uh, yeah, I heard him say, you know, you begin by thinking, which restaurant should we eat at this evening and end up thinking, I'm worthless, my life's pointless. Totally. So, like, the, the thought itself, and in meditative practices, obviously, you're aware, like, the, uh, the process of observing my own thoughts and, like, oh, wow, look at that. I wonder what my next thought's going to be. Uh, uh, eventually, there is a cessation in that, and as you say, I am the witness of the thoughts as opposed to the thoughts themselves. And then I can apply that in non-meditative conditions like now or when I'm driving the car or I'm thinking about it, I was I'm thinking about it now. I was thinking about this during the car. I'm thinking I was late and making phone calls. Like, And I think that the, that's why I think the addiction model it can be helpful because I feel that we um, are attaching to to things to thoughts you know and on some level thoughts must be an object they must have a weight a measurement an electronic charge there must be some matter some physical matter or at least charge to them i feel that i get you know addicted to particular patterns of thought particular beliefs so i i, I like your idea that of acknowledging sort of in a sense failure as a way of turning away or at least stepping back from that yeah well the thing about failure is that it's a fact. It exists. It's going to happen to all of us to a greater or lesser degree. So you can choose what emotion to attach to that fact. Now, that takes a lot of work and you have to put a lot of effort into it. And I'm not saying that it's easy at all because failures can be extremely traumatic and failures can change the course of the rest of your life. Failures can be very difficult to come to terms with. It's simply that the philosophy I've created for myself is that I choose to to do that. So I choose to believe that every failure that happens to me, every mistake that I make is a nudge from the universe in a different direction. I choose to believe that it's teaching me something. And so now I choose to believe that that breakup ended not because I was losing someone, but because I was being encouraged to find myself. That's very, yeah, I mean, you're right about that. And I suppose our, um, Sometimes there is an intransigence or an unwillingness to relinquish a plan that, that the same way as we're bound to our thoughts, we can be bound to these perceptions, in a sense, these pride based constructs of who we are and how we should be perceived. I, I feel like the more you want something and the more you plan for it, the greater blow it will be if it don't go your way. Now, what is your attitude towards plans, planning and vision now then? I don't I used to be someone with a five year plan. And I'm smiling because it's just so that you're expressing something that I've thought a lot about and I completely agree with that now I don't have plans. Mm. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I plan what I'm going to do in any given week and where I have to be at a certain time. But I don't have a five year plan and I don't have 
goals that are predicated on the notion of a future me because the future me doesn't exist. And when I get there in five years time, I'll probably be a slightly different person than the one that I imagine. And that's good. And I want to have the freedom to be able to do that. I like what you said that um, you recognise that your life goals and identity was as a result of social constructs. How do you, how do any of us even begin to forge identities and relationships beyond uh, such an immersive cultural experience? That's such a big question. And for me, I was... Thanks, just made it up. There you go. It was very just good. Come just up came questions. out of nowhere. <laughs> Just by listening. Yeah, but you don't have to answer it. No, this is the difficult true. stuff. No. Yeah, um, it's over on your side. That's where all the trouble is. I'm having a kombucha. Relaxing. I, for me, I had to be confronted with the fact that all of the stuff, all of the big stuff I thought was going to happen for me didn't happen. And that made me look at myself outside of relationships. And what I mean by that, and I write about this a lot in the book because I wanted to be able to express it somewhere because I don't think it's talked about enough. The most practical example I can give to you is my failure to have children. And when I say my failure to have children, I'm aware on one level that it isn't really my failure. It's a quirk of biology. Uh, And that's extremely sad to me. And it's taken me a long time to be at peace with that. And that's still a kind of active work that I do every single day. Um, But I'd always expected that I would have children. I'd never thought to question that. I just thought it was going to happen. And then it didn't. And so I was forced to come to terms with that future. What was your first response? My first response was... uh, well, I don't, it's still, it's still my response, actually, which is that I'm an incurable optimist. So I still have hope. But having hope can be extremely upsetting because it makes you more vulnerable to having your hopes extinguished. Yeah. And yet it's the only way that I can live life. I Because I think life is beautiful and I believe in it. And I believe in always trying and getting in the ring and believing in the fundamental goodness of people. And that comes with a risk because you are making yourself vulnerable every day. So my first reaction to like the unsuccessful IVF was to think, well, I think I'll still get pregnant. (laughs) And then my reaction to my miscarriage was numbness, actually. It took me a long time to process and it was a slow motion thing and my marriage eventually imploded. But what that miscarriage did and what I'm grateful for is made me realise that my marriage was the wrong relationship to be in. Uh. And I'd spent all of my 20s in long-term monogamous relationships. Again, because I was conditioned to believe that I was actively trying to find a spouse (laughs) by a a timely age. And and then I ended up in this marriage and actually I realise now looking back, I was an inveterate people pleaser because I had no sense of self-worth. I was outsourcing that to other people, either to romantic partners or to employers. or to friends and it meant that I had never taken the time to work out what my true desires were and it all spectacularly imploded. How do you navigate those impulses now like in my experience like I the the you say you inveterate people pleaser like for me I fully behind you with your belief that people are fundamentally good and also I believe in change radical change it's possible i've experienced it and seen it all around me 
Um, but when it, but my experience is, is that I still have the same impulses often, and I, and like you're saying that we can choose how we respond to failure. The my program is one of bec- being conscious of what my impulses are. Do you still have people pleaser type impulses? Yes, I do. And it's why I found the work of Brené Brown incredibly helpful and specifically her podcast with you. And I'm not just saying this because I'm sitting here with you and I want to blow smoke up your ass. But I find that episode incredibly helpful because she talked about how much research she'd done into the habits of hyper compassionate people. And she'd found that the one thing that connected them, people like monks, the one thing that connected them was that they had a very strong sense of boundaries. And in my people pleasing years, I thought that having boundaries in place made me selfish and people wouldn't like that. And they'd come up against those boundaries and they'd judge me for it. Yeah, I hate, I'm still a bit scared of it. But I think that what Brené made me realise was that actually having strong boundaries means that you can be compassionate in the most meaningful ways to the most meaningful people. How, how? Because it gives you integrity, because it preserves your compassionate energy. Because if you are, as I'm sure you are, an empath and you feel things, then you can't go around feeling everything all of the time. You need to focus your energy to where it's most needed. And having boundaries in place enables that to happen. Because what I've increasingly realised is that if you don't have those boundaries in place... There, as much as people are fundamentally good, there are people who haven't done the work that you, Russell Brand, have done on yourself and who are emitting all sorts of toxic vibes that if you start integrating yourself with will have an, a bad impact for both you and the person. And it's about encouraging other people, I think, to do the work and realising that if they are annoyed by your boundaries, that says everything about them and not very much about you. When you say this boundaries, what do you, can you tell me practically where you have a boundary, for example? Yes. So part of the hangover of my people pleasing and part of the hangover of my existential fear of being alone. <laughs> oh, the old existential fear of being alone. That'll get you. Yeah. Just dying on my own. No one, no cares. one caring. Exactly. That's one. That's probably my biggest fear. That and like long illness. So part of my way of counteracting that or giving myself the illusion of control over that because it was purely an illusion was that I would fill up my diary with social events every single evening of the week and that's really exhausting especially if like me you are actually I'm an introvert who's learned successfully to appear a bit extroverted when necessary (laughs) and and it's exhausting. exhausting it's so exhausting isn't it and and I just I can't do that anymore. I mean, it's partly an age thing, but I can't. And I actually, what I realized was that I was saying yes to things and it was people I didn't even know that well. And it meant that my diary was too full and I couldn't see the people that I truly loved, like my best friends, my partner. And um, one of the practical examples of a boundary that I now have is that I say no. And when I say no, I don't make an excuse and I don't lie. I just say, that sounds really lovely. Sadly, I'll be unable to make it end of text yeah no is a sentence one of my mentors says and it's hard it's so hard but actually you need to start treating yourself with the respect that you would like other people to treat you with go can you give me some more examples of that around this boundary when you were saying that about boundaries elizabeth i thought like um about how 
I can become untethered. So when I'm in the world, in like a, in your language, like being empathetic and being sort of very open to people and stimulated and sort of excited and engaged by people, I kind of f sometimes forget like that I've got another life. It's not, I'm, I've changed. I've changed in particular in the last five years. But so it's like, in a sense, the reason there's a lack of boundary is because I'm sort of like an open channel and I'm continually like, oh yeah, all right, I'll go and live there. Oh, I could be this person. Yeah, well, where are we going? France, oh, all right. And when you're a drug addict, excuse me, burping, I'm drinking this fizzy drink. Um, When you're a drug addict, or, or promiscuous, like all those people, they lend you to sort of this constant sort of snakes and ladders, ongoing chaotic sort of lifestyle where you can kind of end up anywhere. And the reason I think that it happened a lot in, or one aspect of it at least, like, and I think this relates to what you're saying about boundaries, is because of a lack of inner connection. Whereas now, what I feel like is even when I'm out or wherever I am and what I'm doing, I have the wholeness or perhaps even holiness of knowing that my primary role or my essential role is I am the father and husband in this family dynamic. And whilst, you know, a priori even to that is I have a connection with some limitless thing that I can't understand that's expressing itself through or material phenomena and non-material phenomena and is the crucible of all consciousness. I still feel like, um, you know, I don't, if I'm at some event feel like I've got to go to another place or even go to the bloody event. I still, I'm not, maybe not as good as you because I don't say, I don't do the early no thing. I go, yeah, all right, I'll come to that. And then later I go, I don't want to do that fucking thing I've just agreed to. I never want to go anywhere when it actually happens. Um, my life is full of the day before, the night before, the hour before saying, I can't do that thing. And the truth is, I never wanted to. I think it's so interesting there that you say about connection with yourself because I do genuinely agree with you that that's the root of it all. That essentially what I was doing by packing my diary was I was diverting attention from sitting with myself, with the uncomfortable truths of who I was. And why were they so uncomfortable? Because of I why were they so uncomfortable? Because there are things that I don't like about myself, obviously. And and I I found it kind of pathetic how much of a people pleaser I was. And I hate the fact that I care so much about other people's opinions, although I've got better at that. But I also fundamentally believe that I should care because what I do, you know, my, my primary thing is connection. Like that's why I write everything I write and that's why I do the podcast. So I want to connect to other people. And I say in the book that I need a sort of, it's not that I want uh, thick skin, but nor do I want very thin skin. I want like a breathable layer, like Gore-Tex. That you would want be Gore -Tex. perfect. Yeah, I want a Gore-Tex flesh. It's an inorganic <laughs> substance, Gore-Tex. It's probably environmentally unfriendly. Hemp. Okay, I want a hemp flesh. <laughs> a hemp fleshed human. Perfect. Where mm. I can let the necessary things in, but I'm also protecting myself. I mean, it's, yeah, I forgot what the question is. Well, the question was about connection. In fact, it wasn't a question. It was an observation you were making about connection being vital for kind of uh, self-preservation and that you with your limitless, endless socialising with trying to escape <laughs> from your disdain for yourself. Isn't it interesting, the sort of uh, relationship between our feelings of self-condemnation, sometimes even self-annihilation, and this idea that you've already mentioned that we're downloading cultural data that don't sit well with us like you said that you know you've spent your 20s looking for suitable spouses and trying to be a version of a in your language sort of female that you felt you were 
obligated to be. I wonder how many layers of subtlety there are. I wonder about the tenacity of those systems to reattach and reinstantiate even after awakening. For me, the process of awakening has to be a continued and ongoing thing. And I'm lucky in that I'm continually prompted by my fallibility. You know, mm. so I'm interested in your work and discourse on failure because it's sort of oh, always with me you know i have to deliberately eliminate m metrics and systems from a, like around me that i might otherwise use to flagellate like oh my god these people are doing this stuff i have to withdraw and abstain you know from socializing professional activity like because i because i feel that so much of it is a manifestation of what you're describing kind of just cultural artifacts that are either ill-considered or downright malevolent control systems I think that we are encouraged to believe by the capitalist industrial complex that we are failures if we are not extraordinary and therefore we need to buy more stuff and do more stuff to make us better and more extraordinary. But actually, I think what you're describing is that there is a great amount of contentment. Now, contentment is a quiet word. It's quieter than happiness, but it's more sustainable for my money. There is a great deal of joy and contentment in the ordinary in in having a life that is quiet and there is great beauty as john updike says in the mundane that that and i think that we as a society have sort of lost sight of that and actually the key to success is not what we've been taught the key to success is not champagne and dollar bills and big stretch limos it is a quietness and a stability and a sense of selfhood yeah that's cool I was thinking that uh, this in culture, this acculturation of deficit, this need to create a population that feel deficient, is an obvious correlate to an economic system that requires continual growth. If your system requires continual growth, then you require your consumer to continually consume. So, the you know the ingenuity of um, attaching. Uh, emotion to purchase to have a, an ideological system embedded in your economics invisibly that people are consuming in order to be fulfilled it can never ever work and you can never ever be free of it and that's why i feel like there's a, a swing to simplicity a swing to asceticism a swing back to the land as people start to recognize these you know as uh, who used to say this culture is not your friend maybe it's terence mckenna culture is not your friend culture is an operating system to so that we as individual units per behave in coordination with what you smilingly called the capitalist industrial complex as if you were announcing a new range of crocheted cushions <laughs> which i'd like you all to buy because it'll make your life better and happier it's no, gonna be so kidding. cozy those little cushions <laughs> yes yeah yeah that thing that swedish sugar thing mm, okay then so what's interesting as well about what you're describing is um Whilst you have had personal cataclysm in the what you perceived as the failure of your uh, womanhood through uh, not having children or and the, that relationship not going the way you wanted it to, you uh, you are able to um, recognise these as points of departure. Where like because my experience is mostly with people that are doing recognisably bad shit rather than what would be typically considered as the usual course of life, which can be an opportunity for 
uh, epiphany, but usually isn't. Oh, I don't know. Usually, it doesn't seem to be presented in that way often. Like it's good to me that it's interesting to me because I don't have much experience in it that um, your journey doesn't begin with oh, I'm self harming or I was drinking so much or my partner was beating me up. You know, like it's not like um, yeah, it's it's not cataclysmic. No, it's, I mean, it sounds very, very painful and, you know, and I'm not yeah. trying to diminish it. But what I'm saying is, is like it's an interesting entry point because it's, it seems like there's not a requirement for you to be sort of like criminalised or hospitalised. Yeah. That, that's a very good point and it's a very interesting one. And I think um, the reason that I wrote about my experiences actually is because they aren't exceptional. Therefore, there's an entry point level for people who might be dealing with um, with the same kind of failure. It doesn't get a lot of airplay, the stuff that I went through partly because it's a seen as a woman's issue and and like what what is seen as a woman's issue fertility so uh i wrote a whole chapter in the book called failing at babies the reason i wrote that is because when i was going through ivf there was nothing there was no literature there was some hysterical internet forums that can tell you anything you want them to say but there was no book that i could look at that would tell me exactly what i was going to go through and what i might experience there was shelf upon shelf of mother and baby books once i got into the infertility treatment world i began to understand that I, my experience was going to be i was going to be treated by 98 percent men mm. um and they because they are men didn't have any experience of what I was going through. So a miscarriage would be, would be, uh, it, um, it would be compared to experiencing a heavy period by a man. And I'm like, well, you don't know what a heavy period is and you've definitely never experienced a miscarriage. So where are you getting this language from? You, you don't, you physically don't understand. So someone must have told you that or you read it in a medical textbook, but there's no reality. If you've actually been through it, that's not the reality. It's an incredibly traumatic thing. A lot of the language around fertility medicine was the language of failure. It was designed to make me feel like a failure as a woman. So I was told uh, that my uh, womb was inhospitable because <laughs> it's a certain shape. My friend was told that she had an incompetent cervix. I was told repeatedly that I was failing to respond to the drugs. And actually, it was my friend Fran who said maybe you're not failing to respond to the drugs, maybe the drugs are failing you. And it was a really momentous shift in my thinking because I'd been made to feel so diminished by all of this. And it was horrible and lonely and isolating. And I wanted someone to have told me that. And so that's why I wanted to write about it. Why do you think that language is so condemnatory and cold? And what do you think this says about um, patriarchy? That kind of stuff? Well, I think it says it's deeply, deeply embedded. And the reason I talk about it so much is that I want to excavate our shame and hold it up to the light so that we're no longer ashamed of it. We've been made to feel like failures as women because we're not fulfilling a biological imperative it suits the patriarchy for us to feel like that it suits the patriarchy to keep us as brood mares just popping out their children while they rule the world and that kind of language has meant that quote unquote women's conditions have been marginalized in all medical terminology so it's only relatively recently that we've started speaking openly about endometriosis and which what does is, that mean it's um it's a condition where you get extremely heavy and painful periods or polycystic ovaries like i just hadn't i hadn't got a clue and i was a woman <laughs> and i i can say you know i can say i yeah it's just if you hear anger in my voice it's because i've been really hurt by it and 
I've recently had another miscarriage and it was and is really horrendous. And I really feel for women who are kind of made to feel that they have to go through it on their own at home. That's the medical advice. Before 12 weeks, you're kind of just left your own devices bleeding at home in terrible pain. And this is something that I feel like in any other medical condition, you'd be in hospital. A doctor would be checking up on you. Yes, it does reveal some interesting unconscious assumptions and uh, dynamics between the sex use. I've wondered before if agriculture began with the idea that females were to be regarded as a kind of utility, you know, and that that idea of command over nature and dominion over nature began not with non-human species but within humanity itself it's very interesting to hear the uh, amount of uh, suffering that that takes place within that and also feels to me as like an indication of the absence of necessary connection around biological human experience I, I mean to say that this kind of uh, outsourcing and institutionalization of it, like obviously there are reasons to out institutionalize health there are financial reasons progressive reasons but it seems that we have um, become more machine-like we're becoming more machine-like and extra the, there's an extraction of the necessary connection in the, from what you said that, that 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 language sounded like it lacked humanity and when uh my wife was pregnant she we went in the hospital and i remember because of laura sort of learning about it and teaching me about it how much the process of medicalizing was a kind of system of unconscious domination. It was really fascinating to watch. Like the, the, if you medicalize something, then you're dominating it entirely. It's interesting to see how frequently and uh, ubiquitously the the controlling of the feminine principle or the creative principle or femaleness or whatever you want to call it is built into social systems definitely and built into language from the off any oh. kind of language not just medical language so that idea that simone de beauvoir explores about the feminine always being the object rather than subject of the sentence it so much of it is built into the prison of our language and yet language is all we have to connect on a vocal basis so so we're sort of it's, it's a difficult business being human. But actually, the original thing that you asked me was about um, my failure being a certain kind of failure and not necessarily a kind of cataclysmic oh, yeah. reaching the end of the road with um, drug or alcohol abuse. And I, I would like to say that I know that I speak from a position of extraordinary privilege in that I am white, middle class. I own a laptop. I'm in the top 0.5% of the global population for those reasons. And I cannot hope to speak to the experience of a person of colour, someone who's homeless, something, someone who's living with a chronic illness, and nor would I seek to speak to that because it would be immensely patronising. And I'm very aware that some failures are more easily assimilated than others. And I'm not here saying, I want you to fail better. And if you're not failing better, then you're failing at failing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that there will probably be a necessary grieving process to any failure that you face. And 
that's a necessary thing to go through. You have to go through grief, not over it. But once that period has come to its natural conclusion, I personally choose to believe that failure has taught me something. And I might not always understand what it's taught me, but there will eventually be a lesson in that somewhere. And that's personally how I choose to live. Yeah, it seems like a good method. I've learned that I don't know nothing. That's like that. I don't know what's like, I, I wanted that to happen. Did you? <laughs> I did like a, I've let go of, like I try to, as best I can, let go of my plan, continually reminded that I have a plan when I'm being impatient. Ah, oh, I had a plan now. No, this should take this long. I'm not sitting in this traffic. I'm going to do this. I'm always picking up the cudgel again, like attempting to reach outward. I always end up reaching inward, though, more flagellation and more problems for myself but you like i believe in a higher power don't you so do you believe that the universe is unfolding exactly as is intended because i believe that but i wonder if i'm kidding myself (laughs) because everything's so chaotic well you know my next question was about god so that's you know (laughs) let's chalk that's another one in the favor of divine interconnectivity and oneness what how, how how excuse me a lot of time when you've been talking and i recognize what you're saying about you know like um privilege and i know it's a sort of in a sense a necessary thing to uh, clock these days but i feel that we're all got our own pain and we're all suffering you know and i don't think that there's a league table of suffering and i've been i've been told that by people that have like i've felt guilty talking about my problems in front of like you know shit like people like grew up in a homeless shelter abused by parents like and she said to me this woman was relatively recently um the suffering is suffering and your suffering is your suffering and the systems of separation like differently if we if me and you were going and the homeless should sort their shit out you know like but when we're like we're very aware i don't know you know we're, okay. we can't be forever damning ourselves i don't think for for not being you know in the champions league of poverty or whatever we're required to be um my relationship now like to what one of the ways that god functions in my life because i feel like i need a functional relationship with spirituality rather than an abstract ideological one it's about me and my behavior and my conduct and the way that i treat other people it's not an opportunity to judge other people it's not an opportunity for me to hold up a, a rubric or metric to other like you should be doing this and you shouldn't put that there why don't you look fuck off you know so it's like when it comes to me being in the world here are the systems that i use and they're like i don't know how to like you know pertinent to your work I don't know what's good for me. I don't know what's right. Like so that like, I am trying to train myself to stay present and aware. Like today, like I was was meant to unfold a particular way, but I got a phone call. So I was like, all oh, right, now I'm being this is one of those forks in the road. Who are you? What person do you wanna be? And so like like I feel like, okay, so now I'm going to London to be dealing with this stuff. And then when I'm doing that, I'm aware of like, right, watch how you do this. Don't get grandiose. Don't get up on your white horse about all of like, you know, just helping other people or whatever it is that I'm involved with. And I try not to, like how I, like how I, uh, how I power operates in my life is a sense that, that a deep sense that there is real intelligence at the essence of nature the deepest level there is intelligence and that that consciousness is a mystery beyond us that continually i talk to like more and more scientists these days in my approach to trying to understand god and i'm fascinated when in science um idioms 
appear or what do I want to say sort of like almost aphorisms that I feel like well that's we've known like I was talking to a, a, a man yesterday Anil Sef brilliant neuroscientist who was talking about like percept- the way that we're constructing reality within our own consciousness and of course there is a, 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 to a, an objective world i.e. you know we would feel physical objects you know but but so much of it is constructed within us and he's, and even the nature of self he said is potentially a construct occurring within consciousness he's a sort of a materialist who believes eventually there will be an explanation for how consciousness emerges from matter me i feel that consciousness precedes matter i've had this conversation many many times with many many people but the fact is that and that it's difficult to deny the um the potent the potency of this that what he is saying in Ilsef is the external world is an illusion, it's a veil, it's maya. And what they're saying in early Buddhism and the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads is the external world is an illusion, it's being constructed, only love is real, we're all one. You know, and I, for me, as the as we uncover new t- territories for, uh, on the frontiers of science, it, it seems that we discover that the laws and principles that we consider to be governing are in fact more like local customs rather than actual rules and uh, how God operates in my life is a continual recognition of my own fallibility a willingness to ask for help for other people an acknowledgement that I need to be of service to other people and a sort of a degree of self-compassion within that as well because otherwise I can get a little bit harsh wow Thank you. I, I do think that wisdom is the act of unknowing as much as it is enlightening. Like it, it's that it's the idea of unlearning. Well, exactly I'm what bloody you, brilliant at yeah. it then. <laughs> what I'm Fuck saying all. is you're an idiot. <laughs> it's that act don't of, take this the wrong way. <laughs> the act of unlearning the things that we've been taught to expect about the, the world because I think you're right that so much of it is a human construct including the notion of linear time. Right. Yes, yes. The, it's starting to unravel before us. What role does uh, God and your higher power play in your philosophy and work? I believe that we are all connected and that there is a collective unconscious. And I believe that it would be extremely arrogant for humans to think that they know everything or that everything is capable of human explanation because we're not that great. <laughs> And if you look at the beauty of the world, and as you're saying, the intelligence of the design, for me, that has to come from a higher power that is beyond our comprehension. And what people choose to call that is up to them. Some people choose to call it God and some people choose to call it spirituality. I choose to call it God and I believe. Do you do any worship or go anywhere for it? No, I pray. Do you? Every day? Yeah. When? Uh, Just before I fall asleep. You do a little nighttime pray? Yes, yeah. Yeah, what do you generally, what's the uh, format of your prayer? This is such an interesting question. I've never been asked it before and I've never said it out loud before. Um, I pray for, I I thank God for the life that I lead and the world that I live in. I pray for my family and express my love for them. Uh, I pray to make myself a better person and a kinder and more compassionate person. Um, Then I pray for sort of, uh, things that are happening in the wider world so ending conflict ending homelessness um, l- looking after endangered species helping all those who need wisdom and guidance and then I end just with a very specific gratitude for the people who are most important in my life so my partner Justin my best friend Emma and my mother 
How beautiful. What uh, role does service play in your practice of spirituality? None. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I can't bother that. It's time consuming. It's boring. Who cares about other people? They're a drain. You people pleased them up till now. Fuck them off. Do you know, I've been thinking about this lately because I really, I think I, I want to do more work in that area. I don't think I do enough. I'd like to volunteer with something that I really believe in. But my act of service up till now is... Um, I do consider the podcast part of it because I do hope that I'm providing a space where people can feel less alone and I get amazing messages from people along those lines. And doing the podcast has led me into various charity work. So I do stuff for Shout, the mental health text helpline, um, which I think is incredibly important. And I do some work for free for people like Scarlett Curtis, who I know has been on this podcast. Um, but I want to do more. And I think that's been something that I've really felt this year. Yeah, it's unavoidable, really. The things that I have to do are like just, you know, I, I like your prayer system there. I like have a comparable one. And that sort of helps me to set ideals. But I recognize these ideals are not useful if I'm not in some kind of practice that's again another thing that's fortunate about being a drug addict and alcoholic and and one of the things i'm very interested in exploring and um in a sense um what do i want to say profligating mm. is uh the, the 12 step system because i believe it is a tool for uh, awakening and a system for living that is as as it's written in its original form talk about the one the acknowledgement of a problem and that your life is unmanageable two that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity three that you we turn our will and our life over to the care of god as we understand god four and five inventorying and confessing and the inventory system is a wonderful tool of analysis because any of us, whether or not we've had a identifiable crisis in the form of crime, violence, addiction, mental health, whatever, that like we're all, I feel, carrying pain and trauma and shame, and that unless those patterns are analysed, I they I continually are reiterated through my conduct. I have found like when you're talking about something as um primal it sounded at least to me as your struggle and experience of uh, with tr trying to have children that, that the shame that you mentioned i feel like that will continue like could it be present elsewhere if you were not aware of it you know in your relationships like you said about being a people pleaser expecting other people somehow to feel that and like the action part of the program after the inventory and the awareness has taken place, the sort of service aspect of it helps me to, it helps me, uh, uh, firstly, the connection with other people helps me address shame. And secondly, the idea that like when I think about myself, oh God, you did this, you did that, you're a scum. I think, oh no, but you also did this stuff. You know, like, so it's sort of, I'm kind of in a way able to be rebuilt because of this program. And in so doing, that construct that you talk about being sort of as a result of culture, whether that's familial experience, experiences of sex, race, class, whatever, that begins to be dismantled and revealed as merely a carapace over this observer, which I feel like is, 
whoever we are it's the same thing looking back and forward it's like a, there is no distinction there is no separateness and that conveniently also helps me get over oh how come bad things happen it helps me understand there is no bad there is no system of measurement in within oneness there's that the sort of biological biochemical experiences that we have but in within oneness within oneness this is just some undulating symbiotic conscious entity communing with itself that's so interesting because it really tallies with something that I've experienced recently in that I feel that a lot of the work that I have done on failure has led me to have greater faith in my own instinct and uh, being very instinctive about decisions that I make. And a lot of the work that I did was also about getting out of my head and part of getting out of my head for me was getting into my body. So doing exercise and yoga and things like that were very important to me and I developed this belief that I therefore knew what was going on in my body and I was internally connected and out of the blue this joyous miraculous thing happened and I became pregnant and I had an unassailable sense of calm about that pregnancy I felt as if it was a moment of pure serendipity and it was meant to be and yes, my anxious brain was unspooling all of this former trauma that I'd experienced and jabbing me to remember that and and taunting me that it was going to happen again. And yet there was this solid foundation of calm. And it was the first time I've seen so clearly the distance and the difference between the two things. And it felt like a step on the path to enlightenment. And then I miscarried at seven weeks and it was extremely brutally painful and part of the pain for me came from realizing that actually I started questioning that intuition that I thought I'd had and I thought I'd really worked hard to develop and I spoke to my friend Claire who by the way loves this podcast and oh, loves you thanks Claire and she's one of the wisest people that I know and she said I don't think that that's what it was telling you I think that sense of peace came from the fact that you knew and you now know that you will be okay whatever happens mm. that's the greater sense of peace and it was a really beautiful thing for her to say and it made me feel so much better you're a very uh, awake person very present in your own life do you do some stuff i feel like i read that you're interested in creating the, what is the cultural organization pin drop studio which what is it What's going on? I'm actually not involved in that anymore, but that... <laughs> Could be bothered helping others. Waste of time, been established. Um, that was a um, a forum where we got amazing... My friend Simon and I got amazing authors and actors to read short stories in beautiful locations and the events would often be free and you could come along and listen to a short story and you could put your mobile phone away and be present and connected with your fellow humans. But uh, But it wasn't as big a time commitment as going to the theatre or something. So it was that idea of having like a drop of tangible, beautiful cultural experience that demanded nothing of you other than listening and engaging as much as you wanted to. And then you could go on with your evening. What are you going to do now with your life? Uh, well, because I don't have a plan. I don't know. Oh, right. Um, no, You've abandoned I it. I'm going to stagger out of here. <laughs> I'm writing. So I'm writing uh, two books. I'm writing a book called Philosophy, which is I have seven principles of failure that I've developed through the podcast and through various live shows that I've done. And it will be an exploration of those seven principles from my perspective, but also using a lot of the interviews that I've done through the podcast with incredible guests from Alain de Botton to 
Jamie Lang off Made in Chelsea. Um, and a lot of their shared wisdom will be in that book. So it'll be extremely practical, but also hopefully inspirational. What are them seven principles? The seven principles are, the first one is that failure just is. So you start by observing it and you can choose what emotion you attach to it. The second is that you are not your worst thoughts and you exist separately from your brain and you can actually train your brain to have happier thoughts if you so choose. The third is that almost everyone feels they failed at their 20s. It's um it's a decade of enormous confusion, I think, because for many of us, it's the first time that we find ourselves in the adult world without these structures um, and the clear tick boxing exercise of being at school. And it feels as if we're being encouraged to live our best lives, but we also don't really know who we are when we're in our 20s. And a lot of people, even the people who seem most, quote unquote, successful, have struggled during their 20s. Uh, the fourth is that breakups are not a tragedy. So that whether it's a friendship that breaks up or a romantic relationship, generally that person has been brought into your life to teach you a lesson. And by letting them go, that's not a failure. You've probably learned the lesson you need to learn. The fifth is that failure is data acquisition. So every single time you're failing, you're acquiring data about what doesn't work for you. And that's bringing you closer to the thing that does. The sixth is that there is no such thing as a future you, which we've spoken about. So that idea of projecting and having a five-year plan, by the time you get to that five-year point, you'll probably be a completely different person. You won't want the same goals. So why set yourself up for failure? And the final one is that it is paradoxically when we choose to be open and honest about our vulnerabilities that we find the most strength. And even if you find yourself in the darkest place, I would implore you to cling on that moment longer because it is never too late. God, that's good. I like those seven principles. Thanks. If you think of any more, just let me know. No, seven's a good number. Don't miss with that. Yeah. Your publisher will be furious. No one wants eight principles of failure. or not. It's just useless. Um, hey... You see that thing where you've um, acknowledged that you're conditioning on one of the most fundamental, you know, cultural uh, tools for um, pigeonholing, positing, you know, sex, gender. If you're willing to challenge those ideas, where does that leave you with your femininity? And indeed, where does it leave you with regard to the inevitable numerous other social tropes that we have unconsciously imbibed and do you have a willingness to look at completely different ways of living and how, you know, how far that shit may go you know i have a complete willingness so i think i'm open-minded i'm very glad that i live in a non-binary age that there's been so much work done by the younger generation in terms of allowing people to be who they want to be and not having as many structures or limitations to that. At the same time, I'm aware that I do live in this world. And um, and sometimes I really like buying a nice dress <laughs> and being part of the capitalist industrialist complex. It's nice, and isn't it, sometimes? It is nice. And I don't think we should beat ourselves up about that. It's fine to be able to communicate with other humans the way that they're communicating with you. So there has to be an element of wanting to be part of that at the same How time. How will we change the world? How will we change it, Elizabeth, if we are willing to still be fed at the trough of industrial at the teat <laughs> at the teat the i was going to say teat but I thought, don't use that word now let her say it and thankfully you did if we're willing to suck at the teat of capitalism how can we ever be free classic patriarchal we... expression how can we ever be free is do you because... think that was a patriarchal expression well now that i think Seems about it matriarchal because maybe... <laughs> the teat is powerful it's not the, the cock of, yeah. <laughs> of no that's uh, true we're not blown who wants that <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It could we, be a gender neutral, the a hole. A hermaphrodite. Oh, we don't say that anymore. Sorry, I don't no know where that's gone. Back. Can we scrap that? Bumhole. <laughs> Stick with bumhole. I gave us a way out and he didn't take it. The bumhole was our tunnel to freedom, Elizabeth. <laughs> The bumhole of capitalism. The Although of no freedom. nutrients come from there, really. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, we're getting bogged down. You know, I appreciate. Just it. the idea of calling it the tunnels of freedom when you're trying to get anal sex <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> anyway, um, the re- the way we can change the world. Well, that shut me up. Is that we-, <laughs> we can dip into the tunnel of freedom. No, the way that we change the world is by not defining ourselves according to our relationship with that. So we can value buying a dress because we like the dress rather than if I don't buy that dress I'm not going to be a functioning human I'm going to be less happy than if I did so that's what I would say right this uh, in the world but not of it this Christian idea saying that you know, we are but I I, I I suppose I struggle with radicalism I, in that I find radicalism say for example spiritual asceticism like immersive transcendence psychedelic journeying uh, living in an ashram withdrawing setting up cults Revolution. These ideas have always felt very potent. Well, I suppose they are potent and attractive to me. And and I sense somehow that you know because of the tw- the twelve steps is interesting too. In that it begins with this sort of rather incremental and pragmatic approach to oh look you're drinking too much it's destroying your marriage it's destroying your life it's destroying your health do you want to stop drinking oh yeah all right I see one day at a time that I probably should do that good okay now. Why did you drink? Oh, yeah, I hate myself. I'm worthless. There's a hole in me. I can't trust anyone. Right, cool. Uh, now, what, what are we going to do about that? Like, is that ever going to go? And what is this hole? And what does it want? And in a sense, it very neatly and deftly leads you to the idea of God. Um, when you get there, the, for me, there's a some sort of imperative, which I recognize I'm, I have only a limited ability to respond to because of, you know, I'm just a bloke. But to feel to convey this, to realise this, how do, what does God want? I mean, and then of course there's the rather sort of um, patronising. It's a bit patronising to think that God would need the help of individual human beings, and the reality we're experiencing is likely the reality that God would have us experience, given the potency of God. I think that. I mean, this is very arrogant of me even to say. I think what God wants is. I I think that our challenge. And the I, is is realizing that there's not a reason, and realizing that life is texture. So life is a combination of different emotions and feelings, and there is something extremely beautiful about being sent a really difficult emotion. There is something very beautiful, albeit extremely upsetting, about grieving because grief is an expression of love, and. That's really what I've come to think is that we've been taught that happiness is the ultimate goal. And I don't think it is. Happiness is transient and fleeting. It has to be, otherwise it wouldn't be happiness. And you can only experience it fully if you've experienced the opposite. Life is texture. Life is all of these different feelings. And it doesn't have to make a unified sense to us. Oh, that's cool. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth. And having a purpose transcendent of my personal happiness and personal pleasure is, you know, help is a route out. But I sometimes try to reclaim that, make that about my ego and my own constant drive for messianic podiums to stand upon and be adored at. That's interesting, though. So do you 
Is there part of you that doesn't want to do that because you think you're making everything too neat? You're making everything into a narrative that... But but you should do it because you're really good at it. So it feels like you're being very critical of yourself. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I feel like, uh, like I have... A, I have to... I've always had this appetite. I have this appetite type of you know, energy. It can go to food and go in all sorts of directions. I've exhibited that over the course of my life. And so now I have to watch what who's driving. That's what I say. Because I've been in, say for example, a very obvious example from my own life was when I was involved in like activism, doing like lots of videos about politics and talking about politics very publicly and campaigning in particular on behalf of an, an, an estate in uh, East London that was going to get taken over by a privatised complex. But that I assisted the the truth is the women there were organized and I amplified these women that were organizing that campaign and it fucking worked like the, the, the housing developers backed off we went to Downing Street it was such a sort of incredible thing and in some ways very pure and for me a very cool thing to be doing because it felt like oh my god I'm in service of this thing I'm doing something that's very honorable and chivalric and and I loved it. But there was a sort of a point in the process where I felt my old habits, the sort of Mr. Hyde side, wrestle back control. I felt my sort of ego, because the ego is a strategy. The ego is there to protect me. It's not like a, it doesn't, it's not they're trying to fuck me up necessarily. It's, these are the systems that I've developed in order to cope with the world that's not entirely benevolent. So now, as I progress, or at least change, like I, I try to be observant of what, what my motives are continually. Mm. Like my motives, if they're not service, if they're, if they're not love service, then be careful because then things get in easy with me. Yeah, I so relate to that in the sense that I suppose that's what I call instinct. I need instinctively to believe that something is right for me to say yes to it. And so often life is very confusing because there are loads of choices and it's quite overwhelming mm. to navigate the path because it's scary saying no because you think you'll never be asked again. You got mentors? No, I've got cornerstone relationships. So oh, like your mate and your boyfriend or yes, partner. Yes, yes. And there, what I realised was that for my mental health, I had to um, dial the volume down on the white noise of ceaseless online opinion. And when you are a writer like I am, you know, I wrote for eight years for The Observer, which went on the Guardian Media Group uh, website. And just the commenters there are vicious, <laughs> are they? <laughs> utterly vicious. And a lot of them know a lot of stuff as well. So, um, And I just got I, I realised that whatever I wrote, there'd be criticism of it. And um, whatever book I published, there'd be someone who didn't like it. And there'd be some really negative reviews that I couldn't help but take personally. Because when you write a book, as you know, it's an it's an enormously exposing and personal act. And so I, I realised that actually what I needed was cornerstone relationships. And I could go to them and I could say, do you think I've done a good job? What would you recommend? Like, what do you yeah. think of this? And if they said you yes you have i think this and i support you then that's all i need and they're the people i trust and feel safe with that's beautiful uh jen hold that sign up again so that elizabeth can read that out it says elizabeth needs to go <laughs> elizabeth only because you live in the countryside and i need to get a train back to london that's right i've uh, <laughs> retreated from urbanization found myself amidst the bucolic trying to find in nature the true glory to to somehow one day bring back to the community. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your uh, brilliant communication, for your clarity, your uh, beauty. I'm very grateful to you. Thank you so much for everything you do and for having me on this podcast. It is just a dream come true. You're lovely. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to that episode of Under the Skin with Elizabeth Day. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did. Let us know what you thought um, on Twitter. I'm Rusty Rockets there on Instagram where I'm Russell Brand. And on TikTok, have a look on there. See the kind of weird things I'm doing on that thing. Remember, I'm coming to Australia, New Zealand and Canada, February and March. Go to uh, russellbrand.com to get your tickets for Recovery Live. They're shifting pretty quickly, though, so you best get in there. In the meantime, because I'm not going to be... Um, you know, can't continually be with you, why not go back and listen to an old podcast like the Elizabeth Oldfield episode or Graham Hancock? That was a mental little journey. Keep checking out my YouTube channel daily for new videos and thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.